Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Today, I am here with Wendy Chung, who is officially the Kennedy Family Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, but also the director of the Pediatric Neuromuscular Network of Molecular Care, also the director of the New York Obesity Center Molecular Genetics Corps, also the director of the Clinical Cancer Genetics Program, also the director of Discover, which I I think is a program for rare disease um, diagnostic, is that right? Yes, diagnosis of rare disease conditions. Yeah, and also the director of the fellowship program in cytogenetics and molecular genetics. So that's not like a lot of people have many titles, but you seem to have multiple careers. Yes, no, I do. I do. I do a lot of different things, and um, I just have a lot of wonderful opportunities and a lot of really good people that I get to work with, and and they're really the people that do a lot of this work. I've I've talked to some people who work for you, and um, they say the running joke is that you've cloned yourself because there's no <laughs> other possible way you could do all these things. Okay, so there's if I could, there's this uh, cute story behind this. So um, that was actually a goal at one point to think of if I could clone myself, and so I thought I had this done. So there was um, a medical student here at Columbia. My name's Wendy Chung, C H U N G. Her name is Wendy Chang, C H A N G. And so I thought it would be, and she, she looks not dissimilar from me, so I thought that would be great. We can uh, have her as mini-me and, uh, you know, be able to do double the work. So she was in the laboratory for a long time with me, and we actually wrote a paper. She was the first author. I was the last author. It was the only paper I've ever written like this where all the reviews came back, and they said it was perfect, published exactly as is. We literally didn't oh my have God. to a word, except they said there's obviously been some administrative problem. You put the first author in the same as the last author, so just fix that up and then you're good to go. So. <laughs> anyway, but when he's startling Chang on so now, many levels, like I don't <laughs> think there's very many people who've ever gotten that response from reviewers. That is true. It was all due to Wendy Chang, C-H-A-N-G. She's now a very successful pediatric oncologist at Brown. And um, anyway, she's, she is in her own right an extremely accomplished physician scientist. I, um, they used to call Jay Leno the busiest man in show business. And I, I, I was looking at this and I'm like, that's the title I want for Wendy. The busiest, <laughs> the busiest person in genetics. That's, that has to be it, right? Uh, so, oh, yeah. so how did so I get how you get there because it's it's intellectual curiosity, right? Like, every right. everything's interesting. But how did you end up in genetics in the first place? Um, so that's a good story. I, I won't make it too long. Um, but the short answer is that I had the fortunate opportunity when I was an undergraduate in college to spend summers at the National Institutes of Health. Um, I thought I was going to be a biochemist uh, initially. It just was very logical. I was a biochemistry undergraduate major. It made a lot of sense. Um, And I had the good fortune of being at NIH where I could see the clinical research aspect as well and uh, realizing at the time that a lot of the biochemistry and even a lot of the rare diseases were going towards genetics. You had to understand genetics. And then it was my good fortune that the year I started medical school was the year the Human Genome Project was officially announced that it would be launched. Um, And it just looked to me, you know, sort of daunting in some sense that it was a 20-year timeline that people were planning. But I also sort of mapped out my own career and realized it was going to take me about 20 years, it felt like, to finish my training. 
so I figured, you know, that'll go forward, I'll go forward, and I'll have the opportunity to be one of the first uh, individuals trained in how to use the genome uh, from a medical point of view. Um, and that just solidified it for me right there. It was very, I'm a very logical person, and it just made a lot of logical sense. Uh, and it looked like an area that was really going to be exciting. And, and it was a lot of fun, to be honest, in terms of growing up from a career point of view with the genome and seeing how that's changed our opportunities. So um, I just fell in love with it after that, and it's been a love affair ever since. So you're the counterexample to everything we tell our children when we say, like, you know, you'll, you never end up doing exactly what you plan. You think, you know, you make a plan, it takes you in a different direction, it's okay. You, like, made a plan and went exactly there. Um, at some point I did, I'll, I'll tell you the, you know, the place where I veered off and many people don't know this story. So, uh, when I was in high school, um, they had at the time when I was in high school, they called it the Westinghouse award. Now it's called the Regeneron award and yeah, yeah. has gone through other iterative names in the process. But anyway, um, when I did it, I was, I grew up in South Florida and my project actually had to do with, um, basically the citrus industry in Florida, and studying some fruit fly egg-laying behavior and various different things. I won't go into detail, but at the time, I really thought my future was in being an agricultural research scientist. Um, I just, um, I understood that. I felt like I could get my head around it. So at the time, I chose my college, uh, Cornell, because it was the best agricultural school in the country, and it also had a great arts and sciences program, and so I went to Cornell in arts and sciences. Much to my father's chagrin, I turned down going to Harvard, and he still doesn't let me forget that. Um, <laughs> but, but at the time, I, that's what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to be in ag science. Um, so, but I was wrong. So, um, no, I, you know, best laid plans were not always. Are there uh, what are there up. days, Wendy? Are there days, Wendy, when you think fruit would never have given me this much trouble? But fruit would never have given me this much joy either. So, yes. I, <laughs> I teed that up for you. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, I mean, that's the beauty of it, right? I mean, I came from to genetics from comparative literature, which I'm not going to tell the story because it's, uh-huh. my, my, it's not my interview. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's a rich subject that way, right? Like, it's, right. it's a great place I, for somebody with great intellectual curiosity because there is... I mean, I, I would say this about you, which, which I, I didn't even get to in the introduction, which I think is really interesting, is not just that you do all of these different things, that you study rare diseases. Um, I think you, how many have you discovered now? 28? Are you past 28? Okay. Are you? Yeah, so I think we're in our 40s now. Oh, really. my God. So you've discovered 40, so obviously rare diseases, yep. common diseases, di- diabetes, heart disease, right. autism, right. cancer. You right. you work in prenatal, you work in pediatric, you work in adult. I don't know if you work in prenatal, but you I know that we've worked together mm. on right. the, Yeah, the, now we're doing we're in fact now have an NIH funded study to do whole genome sequencing in the prenatal setting. So yep, we're pushing and, it. And I think the most interesting thing to me in addition is that you were interested in sort of the hard molecular diagnostic part of this precision medicine but also in like the process of giving back results cultural barriers stigma you've worked in all lc ramifications you've worked in all of these areas that's that i think that breath even more striking than the sort of um different types of diseases i mean i think so to me it always starts with the patient right so 
I think everything I've ever done that amounted to everything started with a patient. And it was just obvious from seeing a patient, understanding what their issues were, and realizing what the gaps were in terms of where they wanted to be and what we could do. And it was an appreciation and a need to fill those gaps. Um, Like you said, I mean, it was a lot of intellectual curiosity, sure. Um, It's a lot of fun intellectually. But the most satisfying thing is at the end of the day, being able to look that family, that patient straight in the eye and said, yeah, we've, you know, we've got this. Um, I wish I could say that for everyone that I see, but you know, the, I, I still see patients. I still stay grounded in that. There are some people that are in my stage that, you know, don't do that anymore, but they really, they keep me sort of centered and grounded in terms of what's, what matters and what are, where the opportunities are. And I guess as we do that, you know, I'm at the point in my career where it's not just about one patient, though I do think about scalability. You know, how can I do things that start with that one patient, but there aren't enough of us as genetic professionals to go around, so how do we all clone ourselves effectively? You know, how do we um, build, you know, in, in our take our brains, how we think, how do we build that into processes that scale? Um, so anyway, so that's what I like doing a lot now as well. And do you feel, so you did in fact... Um if I get my math right, sort of uh, move out of training, right? You, 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 you're, you're, you, you were in sync with the Human Genome Project. Um, and yeah, the good thing, yeah. yeah, the good thing was, you know, Craig Ventner um, kind of pushed things along. Um, I pushed things along. Uh, so, you know, did some, <laughs> I still went through full training in terms of internship, residency, fellowship, did all of those, um, but, you know, did them pretty swiftly and efficiently. Um, so yes, by the time the Human Genome Project was finished, uh, my medical and PhD training were finished. Um, you know, we've both finished other milestones beyond that. Um, but I think it ended up working out. We stayed in sync, and it and it has been fun to, like I said, be able to see just you know enough ahead to see what the immediate near-term needs were, and then to start filling those gaps. But then. You know, I, I think long term about where I'd like us to be in genomic medicine 10, 20 years from now. And um, hopefully I think from, I um, from a not quite insider's point, like an educated outsider's point of view, you'd say that the, the that maybe at five years, people were like, hey, expectations for five years were too high. And at 10 yeah. years out, out of the Human Genome Project, there might have been a little anxiety that we didn't have what we expected to have. And now... Right. To me, I think we're suddenly hitting a whole new place where the clinical significance of the Human Genome pro- Project is only blossoming now. Do you, do you find that to be true? Do you, do you find well, the percentage of people you can make a difference for is appreciably different than it was five years ago? Well, so I definitely agree with you that um, things were overhyped. You know, the expectations were higher than we could deliver on. Uh, I think we've done an amazing job on the discovery side in terms of I. I think we finally hit our stride in terms of diagnosis, um, in part because, you know, the cost of sequencing has decreased, and so we're just able to do more with less. Uh, the biggest gap, which I still think, you know, the, well, let me say two things. So even on the diagnosis side, I think there's uh, room for improvement. So we've done studies where we've done genome sequencing and returned results to individuals, and I would say the most common response that people give me is, well, that's pretty vanilla, you know, like, mm-hmm. tell me something new, tell me something, you know, more, tell me, you know, give me my sort of play-by-play, year-by-year in terms of what my health is going to be in front of me. Um, and we're still not good at doing that for a number of reasons. Um, so I think we still have more to do in terms of the diagnostic side, but we are getting better. And some of the folks uh, that are listening to this will know about things like um, 
monogenic, high, highly penetrant conditions. I think we're getting our, our heads around that space very efficiently, even for rare diseases. We're just venturing in, I think, to things that have sort of modest uh, effect size, modest odds ratios, but we're starting to do that in some of the cancer areas. And people are now at least starting to think about how you think about polygenic risk scores or common variants. I won't say we've got that one figured out at all, but you know, we're starting to get in there. Yeah, we've done a lot biggest... of talking about that on the show, oh. and I think there are a few really exciting clinical uh, areas where it might have clinical significance soon. But you know, right. I don't, I don't think it's in the, I don't think it's, it's been proven that that risk estimation is is going to be fruitful in all areas. You know, but diagnosis right. is quite different. Um, right. I, I was having a discussion with students the other day about what percentage. Uh, you know, if, if you if you take a population and you do uh, exome, um, what percentage you get back a a, a result that it, that answers a, the, a medical question is uh, is successful? And I think because um, we were talking about the first baby seek results, which I'm going to bring up with mm-hmm. you, because you said you're just starting to do prenatal whole genome sequencing, mm-hmm. um, and. You know, so some of the studies of sick populations, I think you very often see about a third of the children or, or, or individuals with a disease getting a diagnosis out of, I, I feel like that's the number I repeatedly see, something around a yeah. third. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're right that depending on exactly the population and exactly when the study was done, somewhere between 25 to, you know, it can go up as high as 40% if you really enrich it, but that, that's, you know, that's a good, good estimate. Yeah, so it's someone in there. Um, I have to say I was a little underwhelmed by the first baby seek results for healthy kids. Right. Um, I'm not... So I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the... Um, so, as you said, I, I split this off into diagnostic, and I call it predictive, um, but for individuals, whether they're babies or adults who are healthy, you know, how much do you get out of that? Um in the same way that you were talking about BabySeq, we had started out doing adults that, you know, on average were in their 40s or 50s. And you can think about, you know, if you can make it to that stage of life, your genome can't be too terribly bad. And, you know, that was a lot of what we saw. And so I think participants were underwhelmed by those results. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way, I think for parents and BabySeq, again, due to the limitations of how much we can confidently uh, understand about our genome, Um, I think parents, again, were sort of the same thing, uh, somewhat underwhelmed. Um, So I I think in terms of your original question, you know, have we we met expectations? I think in terms of that prediction, um, I I don't know. You know, I think there's still some gaps. Um, I just want to get back to one thing, though, is that in terms of therapeutics, I think that's where the real disappointment has been. Um, You know, this idea, I think that you could identify the gene and then, you know, the next year after that you'd have a treatment, you know, you just gene therapy everything and it would all go away and it would be fixed and we'd be done. Um, that clearly, that sort of uh, vision that a lot of lay people had I don't think has been realized. And, you know, it's tough. Um, you know, we've known about sickle cell disease for way before the Human Genome Project started and we still haven't figured that one out in terms of a, a robust therapy. So, um, anyway, there's yeah. a lot of work to do. I'm not going to be out of a job anytime soon. So. <laughs> Well, when you could be out of a job, it would be fine. 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> you, could, you could put yourself out of a job and just, just stick to the seven or eight <laughs> okay, others. It, it would okay. be okay. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit because I feel like it's something that you've studied a lot and gets less attention about the genetics of obesity. Um, uh-huh. Now, you've done a lot of work on this throughout your career, right? Right. That's where I started, actually. And was it tied directly to, to diabetes or what, do you, have you looked more generally at the genetics of obesity? Yeah, um, so the very beginning of my career, which um, may or may not mean it something to everyone, but uh, when I was a graduate student, worked with Rudy Leibel at the Rockefeller University and um, was working on a simplified model of this, a, a rodent model, a, a mouse and a rat model of single genetic forms of obesity, uh, the so-called obese mouse and the diabetes rat, or OBNDB. Um, and while we were there at Rockefeller, uh, those genes were cloned, now known as leptin and leptin receptors, respectively, and really, you know, just breakthrough discoveries in terms of being able, to, and I, I'm not taking credit for those, um, but breakthrough discoveries for the field in terms of understanding the physiology of uh, adipose communicating with the brain and, you know, how that happens and um, just wonderful, I think, validation of the original Coleman studies of parabiosis to know how, how those systems worked. Um, so the disappointing part is when you look at people, actual people, there are individuals who have leptin or leptin receptor mutations, and I've certainly had patients with them, but they're not very common. Um, and so I think one of the big things is that although those specific genes were not a common or a large burden in terms of heritable obesity in people, I do think they had remarkable influence in terms of our understanding of the physiology of body weight regulation. Well, a lot of, and, a lot of genetics is right that, right? Like the rare, uh, the rare sort of freaky variant or, or structural uh, variation teaches us something that we would have had trouble learning any other way. But, yep, but it, so. it, it doesn't, it's, it's not, uh, it's not, a, I was actually, that was kind of my next question. Like, what is the relative significance of rare and common variants in obesity? And it's oh. mostly down to common variants, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, to your point, though, that obesity is highly, it's interesting, it's highly heritable. You know, so if you do twin, classical twin studies, monozygotic, dizygotic twins, it actually has high heritability. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you can literally watch what's happened to the weight of the average American in the United States. And clearly our genes haven't changed over the last generation or two, but our body mass index has changed remarkably, right? So that's right. not your genetics, but it's your environment. So it's this complex interplay of the two. People think about epigenetic changes or transgenerational changes as well, and, you know, there may be an aspect of that. But largely what it is is that we just have really tasty, relatively inexpensive food, and we have a lot of mechanization. So if you compare my levels of physical activity to my grandparents who were farmers and really, you know, expended four or 5,000 calories per day. Wait, um, your grandparents you know, were farmers? Yeah, my grandparents were farmers. Cool. Um, so by comparison, you know, I need to expend less than half the number of calories per day that they eat. Um, so, you know, the combination of those things just push us into it's very easy to gain weight. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and, and I mean, I mean, I think there's parts of that that people get. They get that, you know, everybody in Yemen is thin. Like, like if you take away enough food, nobody's fat, right? And I suppose right. that you could make anybody fat if you if you stuff them like a goose. But the, it comes down to the question, I think, that, that is active for people. The question that, you know, that they wonder is, you know, it comes down to the sense of, but 
are you saying, in, and I'm not, I'm, I know you're, you're not going to say anything so simple as this, but I think for people, they're like, is it their fault or isn't it their fault, right? Like, oh, yeah. That, yeah that's yeah. the, that's the, the question so, that I think when people are asking about the genetics of obesity from a sort of a lay person's point of view, that's really sort of what they're wondering, right? Like, right. Are right. you saying it's not their fault? Or are you saying it is their fault? And I, I mean, I, so I'm going to so, let you say that, but I know you're going to say complicated, not simple. Yeah. Well, so, so it is complicated, but I do want to destigmatize obesity. So in the same way that, um, I mean, it's a behavior. There is a whole science of ingestive behavior. Um, this is largely, it's, it's, a large part of this is seated in the brain, in fact, but there are also peripheral signals that are coming from everything from your adipose tissue to your stomach and hormonal systems that feed back on, on this. Um, but it's not just a matter of being hedonistic or not being able to control yourself or having an addictive personality or things like that. I mean, um, there's real biology that undermines this in terms of uh, like I said, even feeling full. And so, you know, one of the more common things about genetic forms of obesity is people literally, they just don't feel full. They don't know what that feeling, you know, people from a common point of view, many uh, geneticists will understand Prader-Willi syndrome as one of those heritable forms of obesity. And if if you talk with folks with Prader-Willi syndrome, they, they literally, they don't feel that sense of satiation. And so that's not their fault. I mean, you know, they were born that way, but the, it's not like they like I said, can't follow rules or aren't disciplined or, you know, lazy or slothful or anything like that. Right. Um, you know, so it's, I, it's think it's, I think it's, I think it's interesting though, right? This is one of those, it's sort of like mental illness or another one. This is one of those areas where it's not clear to me what is destigmatizing because obviously, yes, it reduces stigma to say it's not their fault that for some people, weight gain is just a much bigger risk than it is for other people. For some people, it's much harder to stay thin than it is for them. And I think that that falls along with, I mean, most people's observations. But it's right. good to have the science to back that up. It is destigmatizing. And at the same time, I'm, I was thinking about it this morning. I was like, do you find when you tell people that, that they feel like is do they feel that then it's fate, that they can't control it? Does it decrease their motivation? Like, there's another side to that stigma. That's absolutely right. Right. So it's interesting because we've had the fortune to be able to talk with, um, in this case, parents that of children that have some of these severe, relatively rare genetic forms of obesity. And what you said exactly is what rings true. Um, so one thing is that they, as parents, and this can be true also for the individual with obesity, is people will say, oh, you're a bad parent. You let them eat too much. Or, you know, you as a person, you can't control yourself. So I do think having that validation, so to speak, that it isn't their fault. Mm -hmm. um, I think heretofore, um, the part has been then what you said, which is what I think of as genetic determinism. So then you say, oh, well, you've got this, and P.S., there's no treatment, you're screwed, you know, so, you know, good luck. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's not true, though, and, and maybe I'm overly optimistic, um, but you know, I do think, and certainly I've had experience with children with Prader-Willi syndrome where we've been able to know before they started gaining weight, because there are two phases with Prader-Willi syndrome, um, that there are things that we could do in terms of being able to externally uh, control portion size and other things that we do that can keep them healthy um, and keep them lean. Um, one of the other things, though, that I hope is going to be a real game changer uh, is that there are some 
treatments coming down the pipe designed initially to be uh, melanocortin-4 receptor agonists and to treat some of these rare monogenic forms of obesity, mm-hmm. but perhaps also being effective for individuals that might not have sort of the very severe genetic load, um, maybe more generalizable. And what's been interesting, even in terms of recruiting participants for those studies that have as their entry criteria some genetic form of obesity, is that people just don't even think of obesity being genetic. And so people are walking around with these types of genetic sort of predispositions or genetic causes for the obesity. They don't even know it because endocrinologists don't think about this being genetic. They don't order genetic testing. Participants, patients, the public don't think of it, so they never think of it. Um, So it's just been interesting that there's a real potential um, chicken and egg problem in the sense that uh, there could be an effective medication that we're going to need to find the right people for to to make sure it's effective, to be correct, that it's safe and and efficacious, but we're going to have to find those people, and it's, you know, hard, not easy to be able to get that done. Wow. and, so life, and life is two. complicated, part one million. You introduce this medication in and, you know, like in the, in the research phase, you get to control how it's used, which is fab, right? right? right. But then when it's out there, you have, yeah. you know, somebody who's yeah. five foot 11 and 120 pounds yeah. and thinks she's fat, right? Right. So, so it will be, and that tends to be what happens specifically within this space of, um, you know, body weight and body image and things like that. Whatever gets put out on the market will need to be very, very safe because people will use it off-label, so to speak. Um, But you don't – it is yet to be determined how generalizable that treatment is going to be and how effective it's going to be outside some of these rare genetic disorders. I don't know. I mean, it's very early days for this. Um, But the one other thing I wanted to say, which is also true, is no matter how you get obese – it becomes extremely difficult to take the weight off and keep it off. Um, And that doesn't necessarily have to do with the genetics as much as it does the physiology of body weight regulation. Um, So one of the things is in terms of one of the public health messages, so to speak, um, is to be able to just make sure that you don't get to that point because it's hard to go sort of uphill. You know, easy to go downhill, but hard to go uphill. My my mother used to lecture me that it was about if you put on weight like... At pu- by puberty, does it matter when? In other words, like, is it if yes. you're heavy as a child, it's hard to you spend your whole life fighting it, or, or if you get heavy at forty, is it's equally hard to to get thin again? Yep. So the question always comes up in terms of set point. When and how is your set point determined? Like a thermostat, you know, your obesostat. Um, so there are. It, it is true that as a child is a very good predictor of what you're going to be like in terms of body mass as an adult. Um, I also think that for women, uh, there are certain sort of times in our lifespan, in particular having children and what happens after that. There are some women that are much more predisposed uh, if they don't take off their baby fat, so to speak. Um, so there are some critical times uh, over the lifespan when that can be important. But yes, um, you know, it is really important for kids. And part of it is um, sort of physiological, and part of it also, I think, is in terms of just outlook on life and habits and health behavior. You know, if you grow up as an active teen, that tends to be something that you maintain with you. If you grow up with healthy eating behaviors as a teen, you tend to uh, sustain those as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's that whole package of health behaviors and lifestyle behaviors as well. I grew up 
my my mom my mom was like a, a middle generation where she had that sort of old school Jewish mom like she wanted to feed me but also she really didn't want to feed me so when I was in college she used to send me care packages of food and the notes would say give these to your friends <laughs> have a little for yourself, I hope. <laughs> yeah, no, believe me, I ate plenty. But it was funny to send me brownies to be like, hi, love you, give these to your friends. Um, yeah. <laughs> so one more question in, in, in this area, um, or more, but if, if you want, but one that's, that, that's sort of hearkening back to something we discussed briefly before, which is the polygenic risk score. Uh, obesity is one of the things that, say, Kathirison's group up in uh, Boston has been looking at for, to put together a polygenic risk score. How helpful do you think that is in this population and how useful, like how, how accurate is it? Um, how much does it separate people in a useful way and how clinically useful is it? Would it be if so- it works? Yeah. um, You know, so I think the limitation is that polygenic risk score in obesity specifically, if you think about it in adults, probably has limited utility because you already have the readout, right? You already know someone's height and weight. They've they've already sort of come of their own in that. So um, in in that sense, I don't think it's going to be quite so useful. Right. It's like when 23andMe tells you what color your hair is or something, you know? Right. Yeah. There are better ways. Um, so, you know, for that specific use case, I don't know that that's going to be as helpful. Um, I also, uh, you know, I think it's brand new territory for us in terms of genetic education about how you communicate this effectively to people in a way that's mm-hmm. scientifically and medically correct, um, as well as how they understand it. And I, I just, I think it's evolving in terms of how we're going to be able to do that for something like polygenic risk score for obesity. So I, think, I, don't... I think that's one of the interesting things to me about this particular area is that it brings up uh, we often talk about polygenic risk scores as scores for adults, but in fact, a lot of the utility, if there is utility, is going to be in, chil- in children, and, and there's really a downside to start labeling kids, right, Right. as anything. So that's, right. So that's, um, I agree with you in terms of the concern. I, I worry a lot, and I mean, this goes back to even some of the prenatal testing that we've done, uh, about how sort of this genetic determinism and how parents perceptions of either prenatal genetics or childhood genetics shape their parenting and the expectations for the child, how they actually parent. And um, I think it, at least I've seen some cases where it can be quite destructive. Um, So I worry a lot about that. Uh, In general, the health message, I guess, in part to me is the same for all kids. You know, you want kids to be active. You want them to eat healthy diets. You know, I wouldn't necessarily want to say, well, just this group should be able to get that advice. I mean, it's helpful for everyone. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I personally, it's not going to be the first thing on my list to, to be able to use for clinical utility. Right, right. Okay, so that's, that's interesting. Yeah, because what you'd get into is when there's, if there's medication, you know, do you, do you well, intervene before the phenotype because you're assuming, but it's polygenic risk score. It's never going to be, you know, really super predictive for everybody. It's just going to be a, a mod- modulation of risk. It, it, well, I think I think your point, though, is a valid point, right? So if there's something that you can therapeutically use, 
you know, do you therapeutically intervene at a point to, for prevention? Because like I said, going from being too heavy and trying to lose that weight and maintain that weight loss is extremely physiologically difficult. Your body fights that and has a lot of physiological ways to fight that. So prevention is definitely the way to go. Uh, again, if we had safe, effective, you know, acceptable, affordable, accessible, you know, all of those things in terms of prevention modalities, besides just, you know, your doctor or your, you know, mom saying, uh, eat less. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that changes the equation. So I think, you know, this is going to be an evolution. We'll, we'll have to see what comes up on the therapeutic side. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's a lot of people out there that would say at the end of the day, we're going to do all these fancy scores. And what we're going to tell people is what we've been telling them, you know, the same thing we'd say in the 1950s, go out, run, you know, right. have recess, move around, don't sit there and right. watch the television, you know, this, like all the familiar, eat your vegetables. Right. <laughs> and it's still good advice. So yeah, yeah, it is. It's advice I should give myself. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate time from the busiest woman in genetics. I, I, on, your, on your profile, on, on, I'm, I was looking up for, for the introduction, you, you actually say, the number of diseases I have studied and continue to study is much larger than most other geneticists, which I thought was such a lovely understatement. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what what can I say? Um, Like I said, I I, it starts with a patient, and it just um, you know you got to do right by them in terms of trying to figure out what it is that's going on and try and be able to come up with some better answers for tomorrow than what we've got today. Um, So anyway, it's it's just shows the wealth of riches I've had from being able to work with so many wonderful patients and families. Oh, well, that feels like a very nice end note. And I really appreciate you being here with me today. And I appreciate the audience being here with me today. Please go to BeagleLanda.com and subscribe. Follow me on Twitter, all that stuff. Thanks, Wendy. Thanks, Laura.